Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. a year at sea, Noah and his family are finally back on dry ground. The nightmare is over. Now what? What do you do at the end of a long trial, a season of change and difficulty? Do you focus on yourself and try to unwind? Do you surround yourself with friends and throw a party? Well, we see in this passage what Noah did. He worshiped the Lord. Even though this trial was brought upon him by God, there's no indication in the passage that Noah was upset or bitter. Rather, we see his gratitude. The very first thing he does before making shelter for himself, before surveying the land, before anything, He builds an altar to the Lord, the first building on the cleansed earth. And on that altar, he offered burnt offerings of clean animals. You might recall that in addition to the pairs of every animal, Noah was instructed to bring seven pairs of each of the clean animals. So this was a sacrifice that had been prepared for for over a year. Those extra animals on the ark that had to be fed and cared for were a sign of hope, anticipating the future, like a bottle of wine saved for a special occasion. And now the time had come to celebrate, and the celebration was noticed. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the offering. This is poetic language, ascribing human characteristics to God to help us understand how he relates to us. Because God does not have a body like us, he doesn't have a nose. But this expression communicates his proximity to Noah and his pleasure and approval of Noah's actions. And note that God is merely smelling the food. He doesn't eat it because he has no need for food. In other ancient Mesopotamian flood stories like the Gilgamesh epic and the Atrahasis epic, in both those stories, the survivor of the flood offers a food sacrifice to the gods and the gods swarm around it like flies because the flood had gone on for seven days and by then they were starving. In the true story, the Lord was pleased, not because Noah's sacrifice provided something he lacked, but because it revealed something about Noah. Noah is faithful and thankful to the Lord, and the Lord is gracious to him. We see that throughout our passage, which is a series of speeches from the Lord. It's the fulfillment of what God promised back in Genesis chapter 6, 
Before the rain even started, the Lord said that he would establish his covenant with Noah. Well, now that covenant is established. His first speech is given to himself. He said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Which kind of sounds like he's talking about his curse on the ground back in Genesis chapter 3. But our experience tells us otherwise. We, we still toil to bring food from the ground. God is talking about the flood, which struck the entirety of the earth. He will never do that again. Because, and this is surprising, look at verse 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is surprising because in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that God brought the flood because every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So he flooded the world because of our wickedness. And now he won't flood the world because of our wickedness. What's that all about? Is God inconsistent? Or did he learn a lesson? Did God think that he could solve the problem of human corruption with the flood? And when it didn't work, did he then change his strategy? No, no, of course not. He's not like the gods of mythology at all. The Lord has perfect wisdom and knowledge. The purpose of this statement is to show the generosity and graciousness of God because the flood demonstrates exactly what the wickedness of man deserves, death. The flood was not God's solution to the problem of evil, but his judgment of it. And so after the flood, the problem of evil still exists, even though there are only eight people alive, eight people who have seen the mighty work of God. And one of them, Noah was explicitly said to be righteous. And yet God knows that even the intention of Noah's heart is evil from his youth. And he knows that our hearts are wicked, but he allows us to live. He doesn't bring us the judgment we deserve the moment we deserve it, but we do deserve it. Understanding this, that our nature is corrupt and that we deserve to be blotted out for our sin is necessary to appreciate the mercy and grace of God. The Lord follows up this good news with even more good news. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Throughout the year of the flood, there were no natural rhythms of nature, no seed time or harvest. During the first 40 days, it was impossible to distinguish between day and night as the water reflected the dark clouds and it rained continuously. But now Noah and all his descendants, including us, can take comfort in God's promise that for as long as the earth remains, there will be regularity. Not uniformity, but a general pattern in creation. 
For example, not all days and nights are the same length, but they will exist. Not all crops are equally bountiful and temperatures fluctuate, but the general order of creation is under God's dominion, and so we can rely on it. This is great news in light of the statement that our hearts are wicked and fickle because it makes it clear that our actions, whether good or evil, have no impact on the overall patterns of the seasons. Many ancient pagan cults were centered around what people must do to appease the gods for the rain to come and for their crops to grow. But the Lord promises that the patterns he has put in place will remain, even though man is wicked. This is what theologians refer to as God's common grace. The Lord shows grace to all people. The rain falls on the crops of the wicked just as it does on the righteous. But the wicked never give him thanks. And so it will only cause them more grief on the day of judgment if they never repent. The second speech of God begins and ends with the same blessing and command. To the four couples, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage and childbearing are blessings. This being God's desire doesn't mean that everyone will get married or that everyone will be fertile, but it reveals the goodness of it, which is something our culture seems to appreciate less and less. Today, you might hear people express concern about overpopulation, not because they worry about the evil nature of mankind, but due to a fear regarding resources. Well, God isn't worried about resources. He's concerned about wickedness, and yet he desires humans to multiply and fill the earth. Why? for his own glory. He made mankind in his image. And though we reflect his image poorly, we are still made in his image. And he wants his image everywhere. And as his image bears, we exercise his rule and dominion over creation. Now, you may have already picked up on this, but phrases and themes are being repeated from the first two chapters of Genesis. Noah is presented like a second Adam. But there seems to be a few changes. First, the fear and dread of humans shall be upon the animals. Though Noah and all the animals had just spent a year together on the ark, the relationship they enjoyed, whatever it looked like, is no more. A man is superior and animals cower because God has put the fear and dread of humans on them. But then you might wonder, why do animals sometimes attack? Well, an animal's fear and instinct for survival typically causes one of three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. Well, God's promise is most evident when animals freeze or run away. But even when they attack, it's out of fear 
not malice. Now, can you imagine what life would be like if he hadn't put the fear of us in animals? We're not that strong. We don't have claws or fangs. How are we not overrun by large gorillas? Why aren't lions, tigers, and bears keeping our population levels threatened? Because God has restrained them and put a fear upon them. As his image bearers, we are the rulers and stewards of God's creation. And by our reason, we have an advantage over animals. You can go to Gatorland in Florida and watch someone wrestle an alligator. People have trained elephants, lions, tigers, and bears to perform circus tricks. Even killer whales can jump for our amusement. For our amusement. Well, the second change from God's charge to Adam is that now our dominion over animals is increased. God granted Adam permission to eat of any of the plants. But here he says to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Meat is a good gift from the Lord to be enjoyed. We don't need to feel guilty about eating meat. Of course, it's possible, maybe even probable, that people were eating meat before the flood. But now we can do so with God's divine blessing upon it. If they felt guilty before, they no longer need to. A third connection in this passage to Genesis chapter 2 is the generous provision of food by God is followed by a single prohibition. They shall not eat the flesh of animals with its blood still in it. This means that eating an animal isn't as simple as picking an herb. We're not allowed to eat an animal as another animal would. We must first take the time to clean it, removing the blood completely. Since blood is equated with life, and life comes from God, the blood belongs to God, which is why it's used in the offering of sacrifices. And there's more to it than that. This prohibition is tied to a new law. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And when Cain murdered his brother Abel, the Lord did not kill Cain. Far from it. In fact, he protected the murderer by threatening sevenfold punishment for anyone who would kill him. God didn't want Cain killed even through a public trial. Instead, he was excommunicated. But now, the death penalty is instituted. Verses 5 and 6 form the basis for civil law. God says that he requires a reckoning. And that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So he gives the power of the sword to execute justice in the case of murder to the people. Though God is judge, he has given authority to man over life and death. The death of a murderer is God's response to a violent world. 
It's meant to protect human life. And interestingly, this rule isn't just for people, but animals as well. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. And thus, animals that attack are put down. Now, rather than violence and murder, God desires human flourishing, which is why in the second speech, he repeats his direction to be fruitful and multiply. In his third speech, which begins in verse 9, God makes it clear that he is establishing his covenant with Noah and his offspring, as well as with every living creature. Now, neither Noah nor any creature asked for this covenant or even assented to it. God established it and guaranteed it by himself for the benefit of both mankind and the animals. It doesn't even need to be acknowledged for its benefits to be enjoyed. And because we had nothing to do with establishing the covenant, there's nothing we can do to undo it. It's unconditional. Never again shall God flood the entire earth. And so every time it rained, Noah and his family would remember the year they spent confined in an ark, but they didn't need to fear. Rain will not be used to destroy the earth. And as a sign of this covenant, God set his bow in the cloud. Of course, the promise of God alone is sufficient. As James reminds us, God never changes, and so his promises endure forever. Nevertheless, for our sake, he has given us a visual reminder of his promise. He has set his bow in the sky, not facing down at the earth, but pointing up and with no arrow in sight. The rainbow is a sign of peace. And many people believe this was the first time a rainbow ever existed. And that could be, but it isn't necessary to believe that. You know, water washing and consuming bread and wine existed before they were given to us as signs and seals of grace in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And even circumcision was a custom in place before it was established as a covenant sign. Now, the wonderful thing about a sacrament or a sign is not the sign by itself, but that sign accompanied by the word of God. Though everyone can see and enjoy a rainbow, it has a greater meaning and purpose when we interpret the rainbow in light of God's word. It's a promise that God will never again destroy all flesh in a flood. Now, there's a natural pattern built into creation where clouds come first, followed by storms, and then God's bow appears in the sky. And so when there is a thunderstorm, we can be reminded that we deserve judgment for our sin, for the wickedness of our hearts. And when we see the beautiful colors of a rainbow, as we point it out to others in our company, we ought to be reminded of God's gracious restraint and mercy 
this is especially known to us as we have it revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 